Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Well, as you may have guessed, today we're talking about the kingdom of heaven and how confusing and puzzling it can be for people in the first century and for us as well. It's kind of a hard chapter to hear this Revelation 6 that we're going to talk about today. Um, And so I asked uh, Sabrina to read some verses from John's gospel to kind of cheer you up a little bit. It's not all bad news, but today it's mainly bad news. Have you ever needed for someone to sit down with you and tell you plainly and truthfully the facts of life? Now, I'm not talking about those facts of life. I'm talking about the facts of life that are more painful, the ones that are more life-altering, more important for you to know. In elementary school, did you ever have the need for a teacher to sit down with you and explain that bullies do what they do because they know they can hurt you because they're weak and cowardly? Did you ever have a need for the high school coach to pull you aside and explain to you that although you deserve a spot on the team, it would go to someone less deserving for reasons that are not clear to you? Did you ever need for a mentor at work to explain to you the brutal facts of the corporate hierarchy, undeserved promotions, and inner office politics? These are painful facts of life, part and parcel of the world that we live in when things are not as they seem, but it's desperately important for us to understand them so we can navigate this world as it is. It may not be fair. It may not be just. It may fly in the face of honesty and integrity, but it's real. And we have to learn to navigate these facts of life. So today we're going to learn some facts of life taught to us by none other than Jesus Christ. If you've been joining us in worship for the last few weeks, you know that we're in the middle of an adventure. We're traveling through the book of Revelation. Chad assures us that we're going to continue on this trail until we've turned over every interesting rock in this story of John's letter to the churches. But I thought since we've been at this for a few weeks, this would be a good time to kind of pause and reconsider exactly what we've learned so far in this Revelation and how Jesus is revealing his purpose for sharing this vision with John. Remember, at the time of John's revelations, the first century of the common era, the Christian church is brand new. Jesus needs to speak to his new church because they're struggling. It's only one generation since Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and the good news of the gospel has spread through all the known world. But the fledgling Christians are confused. The kingdom of God was thought to be breaking into their world at any moment. These newest Christians believe that if they were faithful, great changes were coming to the world. The old images of the Jewish Messiah as a conquering hero still permeated their wishful thinking. But the realities of the world were right in front of their face every day, especially in the churches of modern-day Western Turkey, the churches to which John was the pastor. There seemed to be an explosion of evil in the world. The pain of the evil was so strong that the people forgot what they knew. They were disheartened, they were fearful, and they were confused. The people wanted to remain faithful, but the pressures of the culture, local politics, commerce, and competing religions was oppressive. 
Jesus needed to explain and remind his people what was going on. He needed to reassure them about all the evil that they still faced in their lives. They needed clarity. They needed understanding. But most of all, they needed hope. So Jesus came to his disciple John in this vision, this unveiling, this revelation. It was time for Jesus to talk again to his people. But Jesus couldn't begin to talk about evil in the world until he laid some groundwork. He had to begin by reminding the people who they were, who Christ is, who God is. Only then could Jesus go on to explain what's happening in their daily lives. He had to begin by giving them a little history lesson, a ride down memory lane, reviewing in vivid and beautiful detail the history of God's people, the history of the Christian church up until that point. In chapter 8 of the Revelation, Jesus reintroduces himself to his Christian children. He defines himself. He paints a picture of himself. He reminds them who he is. In chapters 2 and 3, John speaks to his churches. What he tells them is this, I know you. You're my churches. You're my people. I see you. I understand you. I love you. He is brutally frank about what he sees. Jesus talks about their selfishness, their lack of faith, how they have forgotten the important things that he taught them. The churches know the truth of his descriptions of them. They can't argue about it. But as Chad pointed out, Jesus is clear also about what they're doing right when they have followed through, when they have stayed true. Jesus sees his churches. He knows his churches. He's clear about their shortcomings, but he loves his churches. He renews his promises, and he gives hope and encouragement to them. In chapter 4, Jesus reassures the people that God is still in his heaven. God is still on his throne. If they ever doubted that, if they were ever unsure, now is the time to be reminded and encouraged. God neither sleeps nor slumbers. The fantastic images that John sees remind the people that this throne, God's throne, is the throne of the king of the universe. It's opulent. It's majestic. It's the throne that Sabrina refers to when she begins her prayers. God is on his throne. He is still in charge, still in control. The next element of Revelation that we heard about last week in chapter 5 is that at the center of the throne there's another player, one whom they know but perhaps they've forgotten who he is and what he did. When the people cry out, who is worthy to open the scroll of life, the book of life, it's clear that no human being is worthy. But it's revealed that there is one who is worthy, the Lion of Judah that we sang about a moment ago. But when John turns his eyes, it's not the ferocious lion that he sees, but the lamb who was slain, who stands at the center of the throne. If the people were expecting a ferocious lion, they were startled to be reminded that it was not the lion who was victorious, but the lamb who was sacrificed. And the lamb is at the center of the throne. Wait. If God is sitting on the throne, how can Jesus be at the center of the throne? It's because Jesus is at the center of God. That's their relationship. The lamb who was slain is seated with God on the throne at his center. He's worthy to open the scrolls. So in these first five chapters of Revelation, John has laid the groundwork. He's reminded his people, his churches, what they already knew, but what they needed to hear and see again. Now, he's able to start to address the serious questions that they had. What is going on here? Why is the world not like we expected? Why are we still facing evil? Jesus had told them about the kingdom of God like Beth reminded us this morning, that it was a hidden thing. It was a treasure. It glistened in the dirt. 
It had to be looked for and held on to. But the people of the first century Christian churches in Turkey were still facing evil. Jesus reminded them of the truth they already knew, but they needed to remember, and now they could understand the rest of what he had to tell them. And so now we came to chapter 6, the opening of the scrolls, the scrolls of the book of life. They're the book of the world. They are what is, what has been, and what is to come. They're not a prophecy of things to happen in the future. They're an explanation of what's going on today. Why they were suffering, why they were being persecuted, why the kingdom of God had not come to complete fruition in this short history of the Christian church. The revelation is an explanation that as God's kingdom appears on earth, this is the way that men and creation will respond to it. It's going to be a war. It's going to be a conflict. Life in this broken world has always been a war. It always will be a conflict. This will be the nature of the kingdom of God appearing. And the people of the first century church need to understand that. Not to make them fearful and not to make them discouraged, but to give them clarity and hope. And so the scrolls are opened to reveal to the people what Jesus knows is happening. The first scroll is a horseman on a white horse, the symbol of power and overwhelming influence. This horseman is the symbol of external forces in the world. These forces arise from outside of the community. These conquerors may be good or bad, but they are applied externally to the people of Christ and their world. The horseman carries a bow, a symbol of invading armies and Roman gods. The white horseman's power may be military, it may be political, it may be religious. Sometimes the conquering power is for good, sometimes it's for evil. But it's the way of this world that these powers appear and exert their influence on God's people. This is a conquering power of evil. The second horseman is on the red horse, the horse of war, the horse of battle. This is a rider of conflict, not imposed externally, but between Jesus' own very people. Brother against brother, family on family, nation against nation. It's the human version of this conflict that must happen as the kingdom of God bursts forth on the world. This is national evil. The horseman does not impose power on God's people like the white horseman. He takes the peace away from the people. It's an inside job, and the people are complicit and complacent about it. Some people will make excuses about why they have to fight and kill each other. This is community evil. The third horseman is the horse of famine, the horse depicting shortages, poverty, lack of the bare necessities. But the famine from this horse is accompanied by greed and hoarding from others in the same community. It says here that they stash the wine and the oil when there's not even enough grain for bread. This is not just a horse of poverty. This is a horse of injustice. This is the evil of the haves and the have-nots. As the kingdom of God invades the earth, injustice will still rear its head. Sometimes this injustice is flagrant. Sometimes it's subtle. We often rationalize this injustice. This is social evil. The fourth horseman is the horseman of death. In spite of Christ's resurrection and the hope of life eternal he has promised, the scroll reveals that in this world there will be death. It's inescapable not avoided by anyone. This is the death, 
not noble, dignified old age, but death that is slinking in early, premature, unexpected. The death is sometimes preceded by illness, sickness, plagues, and pandemics. The fifth seal that is open shows those who have died in the faith, crying out, wanting to know if their deaths were in vain. They are under the altar, which is where the blood of the sacrifices would have collected at the altars of the ancient Jewish people. In this world, there will not only be death, there will be unjust death of those killed simply because they believed. Just another consequence of God's kingdom exploding into the world, even the faithful will not be immune to martyrdom. The last seal opened in this chapter, the sixth seal. This seal reveals that in this world, as God's kingdom appears, there will be convulsions of the earth. So great is the power of this invasion that there will arise earthquakes, storms. The whole of creation will shudder, and no one, not the poor, not the rich, not the pagans, not the faithful, no one is spared. The whole of the universe groans with the birth pangs of the emergence of God's kingdom on earth. So chapter 6 are the answers to the questions, the questions that the people of the first century church were desperate to know and to understand. They were having a hard time seeing a way forward into the future, pressed down by all of these horrible burdens, burdens that they hoped that they could avoid simply by being good Christians. As Chad mentioned from the beginning of our Revelation study, Great confusion and disagreement has followed the stories of John's revelation since the day it was written. I would suggest to you that this is a revelation to specific peoples, Christians in churches, faced with trying to understand what God is doing, what Jesus is doing, faced with trying to understand what is happening around them. They're confused, they're frightened, wondering if their faith has any value at all, wondering if their resistance to the culture is futile wondering if resisting the pressures of Rome really make any sense. Jesus in the Revelation is showing that his people the things are not as they seem. There's more going on in their world, in this kingdom of God breaking into their world, than they could see hour by hour and day by day in their lives. Revelation reminds them with Jesus' constant references to the stories of the Old Testament and the heritage of the Jewish faith that all of this has happened before. It's happening again now, and it will happen again in the future. That's not a bad thing. It's simply the way of our world. In chapter 6, the evil of the world is named, it's defined, it's acknowledged, it's explained. Evil is not minimized. Evil is not glossed over. But it's put in its place. The trials of this life, the conquerors and war, injustice and death, and dying for your beliefs— natural disasters. It's all laid out in the colorful, imagination-fueled word pictures that John gives to Jesus, or Jesus gives to John. These first Christians did not, Jesus, did not need Jesus to tell them about how bad the world was. They knew it. Their history reminded them of it. They lived it every day. But for the new church, the believers in these seven churches, Jesus had to remind them that there was a difference, a contrast between the people of the conventional world and these new Christians. The difference for these new Christians then and for us now is the knowledge repeated in Revelation that Jesus knows about his churches. He cares for them. He loves them. The difference for Christians 
is that they can close their eyes and they can see through John's revelation that God is on his throne, resplendent, sovereign, in control. The difference for Christians is that they can see in the center of the throne the lamb who was slain, who was victorious, not because he was a military hero, but because he was sacrificed, sacrificed for the people that he loved and then resurrected. And now, 60 years later, he's in a position to share this revelation with John to give to his people that they might have hope. So what, Chad would say. Well, here's the so what. I don't know if you've noticed, but in our world, there are still conquering forces. There are things beyond our control that invade our day-to-day life from outside of our sphere of influence. Sometimes these forces are Republicans, and sometimes they're Democrats. But these forces are always present in our world. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's still injustice in the world. There are places where people do not have enough to eat, and other places where people spend money to lose the fat that they've ingested. In our nation, there are people who can barely read and people with multiple college degrees. There's famine and there's food hoarding in the first century church and today. I don't know if you've noticed, but people still suffer from illness, cancer and dementia, COVID viral infections. People die in spite of the fact that Jesus was crucified, was resurrected, and now sits at the center of the throne. People still die. It breaks our hearts. We grieve. It was so in the first century church, and it is so today. People dying for their faith. It's happened throughout history, every day of the world, since John's day to our day today in Asia and the Middle East. I don't know if you've noticed, but there are still upheavals in God's creation. Earthquakes still shake. Hurricanes level cities, sometimes twice in six weeks. Wildfires scorch huge swaths of the earth. Pandemics ravage the whole world, leaving death and illness in their wake. It was so in the first century AD. It is so today. And yet... And yet, we have already been reminded of the things that are foundational to our understanding of this world. Jesus has already explained to John again, he is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus has already said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and that he is alive forever and ever. Jesus has already revealed again that God still resides in heaven, on his throne, resplendent, omnipotent, reliable. Jesus has already reminded them that he sees his church, he knows his church, he loves his church. And Jesus has already jogged their memory. There is a lamb who is at the same time bleeding and victorious, who is at the same time sacrificed and worthy to open the scrolls of life. These harsh, realistic, brutal facts of life are painful to hear. We wish they were not so. We wish that our faith in Christ, our faithfulness in worship, and our genuine desire to be God's people will somehow immunize and protect us. But it was not so in the first century, and it's not so today. But we can remember. We can remember the foundations that Jesus reminded us of in the beginning in Revelation. And I would invite you to stay tuned over the next few weeks to see how the rest of this revelation will teach us, encourage us, reassure us, and give us hope. Jesus said, 
I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage. I have conquered the world. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us a world, a creation to inhabit, and our very lives to live. We confess that in this broken world we experience evil. We suffer injustice. We see poverty and natural disasters. And we struggle to understand how we fit into this reality. Remind us in the words of Revelation and in all your word how we can be clear about your love for us, which transcends the pain of this world. For we ask it in Christ's name. And all God's people in one voice said, Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.